Is it good with your soul this morning? It is if you follow Jesus. We get to examine a really interesting passage of Scripture today. It's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. So you're going to be going back into the Old Testament. Haven't taken you there in a while. Going to be little dust balls puffing up from your Bible when you open it up, right? Most people don't go into the Old Testament a whole lot. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, go into the Old Testament, into 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, we'll be starting at verse 1. Before we do that, though, I, I want to put an anchor verse up on the screen, and I want to qualify it this way. I know that moms love to give gifts, right? Moms like to get gifts, but moms love to give gifts. So how many um, of you in this auditorium right now, just by a show of hands, how many of you asked your mom in your life this week when they, if, what they would like for Mother's Day, and they said, oh, just don't get me anything, right? How many, how many heard that from somebody? Okay, I see hands, right? Don't believe that, right? <laughs> that, that is not a good policy for Mother's Day. Don't, don't do that. Don't go there. Here's what I do know, though, about moms. When they take in gifts, moms love to re-gift. They love to give things back. Moms, I'm going to give you a chance to give something back this morning. I told you last week that we started streaming live um, the services right now. If you want to text somebody, tell them that we're streaming this service live. They can go to the New Hope Facebook page and watch what you're about to watch. Here's how you can re-gift we're about to talk about individuals who have lost hope, individuals who have lost that sense of peace in their life. Maybe they can't even say it's well with their soul and they're really struggling right now. You might have somebody like that in your life, maybe that's you. If you have somebody like that in your life and you want them to watch this, just go ahead and send them a note right now. Get your phone out and send them a note and say, hey, Catch this on New Hope Facebook page. Here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with Romans 15, 13. And Romans 15, 13 says this, May the God of hope, before I go any further, catch that. See who God is? He's the God of hope. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Why? so that you may overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So my question for you this morning is, how is your joy factor? How, how is your hope factor? You got that biblical joy? You got that kind that's lasting? It's not fleeting? It's not based on how good your event was last night that you were at? Not based on how good the dinner's going to be this afternoon or, or the family environment that you're going into. It's not based on that. It's not emotionally based. This kind of joy is rooted in something deeper than emotions. Many people, when they read things like that, they think, is that possible? Is that really possible to live that way with that kind of joy and peace and hope? The Bible says it is. The Bible says, if you look right there at the verse, it says it itself. If you trust in him, the trust, the result is you can overflow with hope. How? That's our purpose in getting together today. That's why we're going to discuss what we're going to discuss. But in short, you see the answer right there in the verse. The, the answer is buried right in there. It says, as you trust in Him, the power of the Holy Spirit flows through you. Let's examine what that means to trust in God because it's got to flow from Him. So I'm going to ask you to do something right now in your own relationship with God. Take 10 seconds and pray and just ask God that He would give you a fresh new encounter with Him this morning. Would you do that? Just take that and I'll join you in that prayer.
Father, I know that you hear the prayers of everybody who's offering it up to you right now. You say you listen to your saints. You listen to us. So God, I ask that you would respond in kind. We have asked for a fresh encounter with you, and that can only happen by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit whom you say indwells us. And we know that your Holy Spirit is present in this room as well. So God, what we ask for and we invite is that you would teach us through the presence of that Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh encounter with you. We can ask for this and we can ask for it boldly because of what Jesus did for us. So we pray to you in his name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, when I was in college, I majored in aviation, some of you knew that. Um, My major aviation, my minor was Bible, and as I was working through aviation in the very first month, working on degrees and ratings and licenses, I came to understand and really appreciate something called radar vectors. And radar vectors are simply this. If you're in trouble or you find yourself in a location and you're on maybe a cross-country journey and you feel like maybe I'm not going the direction I'm supposed to go, You can call into the control tower and those really kind individuals who have very calm voices respond back to you and tell you precisely where to go. It's known as radar vector. So if I'm flying on a 270 degree angle on the compass dial and they see me on the radar screen and they say, wait, no, you're off track. You need to be at 275 degrees. They can tell me that and I can adjust accordingly. God gives us radar vectors in Romans 15. You just saw a part of it in the first verse you looked at. He's the God of hope. But translate that over to Romans 15, 4. Look with me on the screen at this. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You're beginning to see this theme emerge, right? That God is associated with hope. God and hope are together. They're connected. They're intertwined. He is the originator of hope and encouragement, and peace, and endurance. That's why Jesus could say, the kind of peace I give to you, it is not the kind of peace the world gives you. What the world gives you is fleeting. My peace endures. You want that kind of peace? You've got to come to me. Many people stop right there and say, what about about when you've lost your hope? What then? What do you do in that moment? Solomon wrote about that. Look with me on the screen, Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Would you agree with that? It does. Solomon ought to know. He's, he's the writer of that. He is King Solomon. His daddy is King David. And King Solomon saw in his life times when things didn't work out so well. And he kind of lost direction, but he actually understood it because of his dad and his dad going down trails where David, even though he was called the man after God's own heart, David lost his way a few times. You come to a story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and you find a David who is completely, clearly void of any hope that things are ever going to get better again. Here's the background. For more than a half a century, more than 50 years, the Ark of the Covenant has been separated and sequestered away from the people of God. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is something that God says is associated with my presence. Uh, It's been stored at a man's house by the name of Abinadab. And Abinadab has kept it for the people of Israel for this specific reason. King Saul, the guy who was in power before King David, he really didn't have any interest in the Ark. 
The people of Israel had carried the ark into a battle like a good luck charm, and they lost the battle. And the ark was taken from them by the Philistines. They carried it away, and then they treated it severely, and God dealt with them severely. And then the ark was taken back, and it ends up back in Israel, but it's put into like a warehouse. It's put into storage. Now, David has just come into power. He's a new king on the throne, and he wants that ark to come back to them. And when most people think of the Ark of the Covenant, they have this image in their mind that you're going to see on the screen. And, and this image is always associated with Hollywood and with Indiana Jones, right? We, we get this imagery in our mind. Well, I don't base my theology on Hollywood, but I'm going to tell you, in this case, they got something right, and you see it in the image on the screen. These individuals are holding the Ark by rods. Now let that image stay in your mind as we go into this story because it plays an important role on why David lost hope. Uh, just some background on the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Ark. It's not a copy. The Ark of the Covenant that we're reading about is the one that has the Ten Commandments carved in stone set inside them. The thing that God gave from Mount Sinai that he said to Moses, this is how you're going to build it, this is what it's going to look like, and you better make it detailed. And the lid is solid gold, along with the cherubim, the angels who are spread out over the center of it. And the people of Israel, the ancients, came to understand that at the center of the ark was what was known as the mercy seat of God, meaning the throne of God where God's power emanated from. So this was to be the visible image on earth of the invisible God of the universe. And David has this deep, deep abiding desire to bring this into Jerusalem to have the presence of God among them. And because of its overwhelming significance, he thinks it's worthy of a massive force of soldiers to help him bring it. Go with me to verse 1. You'll see it on the screen or maybe in your own Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, David is especially aware, because he's been a soldier, that it's possible that the Philistines are going to try and launch an attack against him, because the ark is being stored only 10 miles away from the border of the Philistine nation. So he gathers together this force of 30,000 men, and these are not ordinary soldiers. These are special forces. These are the elite of the elite. So David confers with his army officers and he announces to the nation, here's what I intend to do. You want to capture the attention of the nation, especially a nation which has been distant from God. And now David, as their king, is trying to bring them back into relationship with God. Capture the attention of the nation by bringing a posse, a posse of 30,000 special forces with you. And all the people heard of this and they show up and they want to be part of it. Why? Because they've never ever in their lifetime been in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. So they're about to transport the most significant object in history to the financial center and the political center of their world. Now notice before we go on into the story in verse 2, do you notice the description of the Ark? He says very specifically, not what it looks like. He says there's a name on it, and the name is it belongs to the Lord Almighty. Why is he underscoring that? Why am I hammering on that? Because the ark is God's personal property. 
God says, this is me. This is my presence. You want my presence among you? This is what you do. This is how you handle it. Go with me to verse 3 now. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Io, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. That's great. He's building a new cart just for the reason of transporting this, right? And David allows them to place the ark on a cart like a piece of luggage. Why do I say it so strongly that way? Because David didn't bother to research and examine the proper approach for being in God's presence. He's going with what he thinks. He's going with what he knows and what he understands, what is familiar to him. Now dive back into the story and you find these two brothers, Uzzah and Io, and they're like the guardians of the ark, right? Their dad had it stored at his house. So they've got this task. They're going to guide the cart and walk alongside the ark, opposite of each other. Now let's go into verse 4. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Io was walking ahead of the ark. So the king and himself, himself and, and all the leaders, they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they want to watch this ark to see it rise up out of obscurity. If you're interested in getting some more details about this story, you can go to 1 Chronicles 15. It's a match. 1 Chronicles 15 and 2 Samuel 6, they tell the same story, just 1 Chronicles is a little more detailed. That's how you get some of this information. So the king is waiting, and he's watching, and the ark begins to rise, and David really, really wants God's presence. But God has already given instructions on how to have his presence. But David wants to do it David's way, not God's way. And he's resorting to some man-made methods, and that is incredibly dangerous. Move forward with me into the story, because when it appears from where it's been stored, David begins to take the lead. He starts celebrating. Go with me into verse 5. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. Sounds like a party, right? It's got all the marks of success. 30,000 warriors, all the leaders of Israel and the people of the nation are gathered together and they're dancing in the streets. The nation is fired up. And it means very, very, very little that the people are celebrating. Because according to God's word, the people were not even to look at the Ark of the Covenant. Let me give you some context before we move forward. Go with me on the screen to Numbers 4.20. This is God speaking. They shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. 20 years earlier from this moment in time, God killed 50,000 people for even looking into the Ark of the Covenant. Look with me on the screen. 1 Samuel 6.19, because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord, he struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. As well-intended as David's actions are, as well-intended as the effort is, it is a violation of God's commands. Keep that thought in your mind. Move forward into verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. 
So Abinadab's house is up on the hill, right? He's a wealthy guy. He's been storing the ark, and the ark's coming down the hill, and it's on this cart, and the oxen begin to stumble, and Uzzah senses that they're stumbling, and he reaches out instinctively to stop it, to steady the ark, and in so doing, he takes hold of the ark of God, and that's a capital offense, And verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Now, at first glance, and I'm talking about mature believers, I've had this conversation many times, even mature believers look at that and say, Wow, that is harsh. Like, really? That guy's just trying to help? He, he's there to escort the ark, and God kills him? Before you get hung up on the, he's just trying to help, let me step back for just a moment. I, I want you to hear this from my heart. First of all, God doesn't need me to defend him, right? He doesn't need me, he doesn't need you to defend him. So what he does and how he acts is without need of me, a mere mortal trying to come to his aid. But I do have contextual understanding of what I see going on here. And it's deepened my perspective. And here's my perspective. And, And don't agree with me or don't say amen unless you really agree with what I'm about to say. My understanding is that man fails to take God seriously. Couple that thought with this. I also understand that you and I, we vastly underestimate the holiness of the living God. Okay? Because those things are true, touching the ark, that is merely the culmination of a cavalier attitude towards God. You're seeing the result of a nation which has treated God like big brother, no big deal. He's fuzzy, he's he's teddy bear Jesus. He's just like lovable, right? Yeah, God is love, but God is also justice and God has standards. God has a holiness standard and that's what sets people back when they see God respond to someone who's just there to like, what? I I thought he was trying to help. Verse 7 uses a very specific word I want you to understand before we move further into the story. It uses this word struck when it says God struck him. So the way the ancients understood this is this way. The Hebrew word is parat, and it means the Lord has broken forth. And this is the way they envisioned it. When God breaks forth, it's like water coming through a dam and busting the dam wide open, not able to hold back the power of the water. See, God's word is explicitly clear. They're supposed to carry the ark by rods, by staves. They're not to carry it with their hands. The ark was never to be placed in a cart. Now, whether that detail is interesting to you or not, that may be, but here's the bigger issue to me. How did David miss that? How did he forget? Is that what he did do? Did he forget? 
Is it possible that he lived among the Philistines too long? Here's why I ask that. When King Saul was on the throne, David was running for his life. And he went to live with the neighbors next door, the Philistines, who lived completely apart from God and different from God. So David's hanging out with people who don't know God, and it appears he's adopted their methods because putting the ark in the cart is the exact same way they treated the ark of the covenant. So how does David miss it? Is it possible that he lived among people who didn't know God so long that he adopted their ways? But just because your environment changes or the culture around you changes, does God change? We, we really need to check our hearts on this. See, violating God's ways costs something. There's consequences. And in this story, God's reminding us, no matter how long ago God said something, he still means it, right, church? He does. He still means it. He never changes. So as a result, in great fear, David gives that site a new name. He changes the name to Perez Uzzah, meaning God broke out against Uzzah here. So that everybody would remember what had happened. Go with me to verse 8. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David's reaction to God's action, right? He's got a reaction to God's action. What is his reaction? He's indignant. David's angry because of the Lord's outburst. That's the reason for his emotional storm. Now, it can mean that David is mad about what God did, but it can also mean that David is upset with himself because he set up the circumstances by which God had to bring judgment. And I think both situations are going on here because it's human nature to get mad at yourself but also mad at the circumstances. Back into the story, Uz is dead, right? It completely stops all the plans. David's hopes are crushed. What he thought was going to be a smooth sail is not working out so well. And the population of the nation, they go home in fear. This has not been the celebration that David intended. Verse 9 gives us the second emotion that he felt. It says, David was afraid of the Lord. Is the fear of God a good thing? I'll just put it out there. Myself, my view, the fear of God is a good thing. Now, that's really hard to hear, especially if you're new to church. Because immediately people are thinking, wait, wait, I heard God was love. Yep, he is love. But God is also justice and mercy and righteousness and wrath. He is all of those things. And he is not to be trifled with. Here's why I say the fear of God is a good thing. Because when people no longer are awed or respectful or no longer fearful of God, the nation is at risk. We're seeing an example of that right here. And that is a dangerous place to be. So David is going through a reality check. You get some insight when you hear his own voice. Logically, he says, wait, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me now? Does it appear to you that it looks like David's got the wind knocked out of his sails? 
It does. It looks like he's just like, wow, I've been set back on my heels. How is that possible? Well, in the midst of all his glory and all the leaders of the nation that have been gathered around him, all the great people watching, he's humiliated in an instant. And he betrays what's going on in his own heart. Wait, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me now? See, that's telling me he's way more than frustrated. He's not just frustrated that his plan is not coming together. He has lost hope. Now what? And when hope is diminished, despair begins to set in. See, I think it's highly probable, just speculating, I believe it's highly probable there's a degree of complacency in David's life. Why do I say that? Well, he's, he's God's anointed, right? He's the guy who killed Goliath. He's now on the throne. He has known victory after victory after victory. He's known things to be good, but the pendulum you're watching swing far. Someone who experienced the favor of God is now being humbled before God. You know where my mind went with this passage? My mind immediately went to Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed. That's what it says. Look on the screen. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. David is conforming himself to a worldly way of doing things. So verse 10 is the result. And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, this is where the story starts to get fun, right? Obed's house is the nearest home, the nearest residence to the scene of the tragedy. So what are you going to do when the king shows up at your door? Hey, uh, how you doing? Listen, uh, I'm wondering, can, can you store something for me here? Right? Okay. Now, no doubt in my mind, Obed has complete understanding of this 50,000 people looking into the ark and God killing them. And he's certainly aware of what Uzzah just did because it's right at the end of his driveway, Right? He's certainly aware that this party has come to a screeching halt. And, and now he's got the king standing at his door saying, hey, I, I need you to take this in. Would you want the Ark of the Covenant sitting in your living room? Some of you are like, yeah, I totally take that. I, I'm picturing Mrs. Obed coming home after grocery shopping, right? It, and, and she's putting away kosher pickles in the, in the fridge. Some of you caught that. And, and, and she, she leans back and sees that glow in the living room like, honey, what'd you bring home, right? How do you sleep with the Ark of the Covenant in your living room? Indiana Jones is trying to break in and steal it all the time. It's like, wow, this is huge. Watch what happens in verse 11. Thus the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So the ark staying for three months. God pours out blessing on him. And I'm noticing the same hand of God that brought wrath against Uzzah is now pouring out blessing on Obed because he's willing to receive God's activity and he's blessed to such a magnitude that all the neighbors notice, and they begin talking. There's something going on at that guy's house. What do you think David is focused on for the next three months? 
man, how did I screw up? Why did this not work out? How could it turn so bad? See, I'm anticipating he went about his daily business because we would do the same thing when we lose hope. When we go through despair, we try not to let everybody else know, but there's an ache inside. David's going through this time where he's really aching and he's wondering and he's longing to grasp the reason for his failure until one of his buddies shows up and his buddies open up God's word and said, David, you screwed up and here's how you did it. How do I know that? First Chronicles 15. I told you there was more detail there. Look with me on the screen. First Chronicles 15, 13. His friends show up and they say, because you did not carry it at the first The Lord our God made an outburst on us for we did not seek him according to the ordinances. Suddenly, David is gaining a fresh new perspective on God. He's recalibrating. You pray this morning for a refreshed experience with God, a fresh encounter. David's getting a fresh encounter and he's maturing as a result of it. Go with me to verse 12, part A. Now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. You notice, church, God never stopped being God. Just because Uzzah was struck dead, just because the ark is in a different place, God has not stopped doing the things that God does. He still works. He's still blessing. You and I are being privileged this morning to witness the demonstration of the character and the nature of God. Check this. Two bullet points. David became afraid of God that day because he understood what it was to encounter the power of the living God. Second bullet point. David is told about the hand of blessing on Obed's home. And he begins merging those two thoughts together. And his combined understanding becomes motivating to David. See, church, it's not that God does not want things to go well in your life. It's not that God does not want things to go well. It's that he wants you to do it his way. And that's what David came to the understanding of. I screwed up. I wasn't doing things according to the way that God told me to do it. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. That's what Scripture says. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So David has to take a step back, and he has to calibrate. What have I done wrong? And then he decides, I'm going again. So he doesn't let it stop him, right? He's going again. Go with me to verse 12, part B. David went and brought up the ark of God from the, of the, of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. First Chronicles has got this really long descriptive detail of, of what they did, but just catch this. This time, they did it right. If you go read that later today, you'll see all the details. They did it the right way. But what Chronicles also includes, I told you, is the reason for the failure. We just saw that a moment ago. First Chronicles 15, 13. Look with me one more time at the screen. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. That tells you, church, God has a plan. God has a plan for how things should be done in your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Not plans to harm you, but to give you a purpose and a hope. 
It is the nature and character of God. He's omniscient. God knows his purposes. And when it's done his way, not what man thinks is best, but when it's done his way, what God says is best, hope is restored. Problem is, human nature says, when all else fails, read the manual, right? Guys, you identify with that? Okay. The women next to you say you identify with that. When all else fails, read the manual. God says, before all else fails, read the manual. Go to my word. Read what I have to say. It's going to work out way different. Verse 13, and so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. This time, the Levites are carrying it by hand. You go into the story and you'll find they're doing everything right. There's like 800 and some priests showing up just to walk alongside it rather than the military units. Verse 14, we get a really cool insight. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Just think Speedo, okay? I know. You don't want that image in your mind, right? So David's wearing something like a diaper. Now, at first... It seems really, really strange to think of a monarch, the king of the country, stripping himself of his royal robes and setting them aside and dancing before his nation in nothing but a, I don't even know what to call it, a a linen ephod. Let's do something. It's going to take three minutes. I know you're ready to get to Mother's Day dinner, right? Okay, I have a really, 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 really old footage of, of the event. There were hidden cameras in Jerusalem that day, right? Okay, here's what I want you to see. Just three minutes of what it might look like for David to have been dancing in that moment. Watch this. Do you think it looks possible that maybe, maybe hope was restored Do you you think that possibly something changes here? When you come into verse 15, the last verse, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. See, this scene, regardless of how Hollywood captured it, there's a blast of ram's trumpets. People are screaming in the streets. They're gathered by the thousands. What is the result of doing things God's way? Hope is discovered again. This exuberance is this expression of hope. Dancing is the body participating in the emotion of the mind. That's what you see going on in this moment. David is jubilant because hope has been restored. How do you get to that place? David's doing things God's way, and it's renewed hope. How does he get back to that place? How do you get back to that place if you've lost a sense that nothing is ever going to change? Just three things real quickly. It's not in your notes. I want you to see it on the screen now. Here's what I noticed. He fears God. That's where it starts. He puts in perspective who is in control. Here's the second thing. He drew near to God. In other words, they had a Bible study. There was a genuine heart searching. Where have I come short? Here's the third thing. I didn't mean for these to rhyme, right? 
That's just the way it worked out. He reveres God. Maybe rhyming helps you to remember it. He fears God. He drew near to God. And he reveres God with worship. Don't take this lightly. You may have somebody in your life who needs to hear this. Hope is restored because God is the God of what church? Hope. He's the God of hope. Romans 15, 13 is a theologically pregnant statement. And I use that phrase because there's a sense of expectancy. This is what we typically see in greeting cards. Look with me on the screen at Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And well-meaning individuals buy cards and send them out to individuals when somebody dies in their family. And, And that verse is scribbled on there. Or when something's going rough in someone's life, they put that verse on there. And individuals read that and they say, the God of hope, why don't I have that? Where is that joy? The verse is incomplete. Look at the verse the way God wrote it, the way that it was intended. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. How do you do that? You find his word and you find his ways so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from God. See, church, this is not a short-term view. This is a long-term view. It's not based on the emotion of the moment. It's in the capacity to keep God's purposes and his word right in front of you. You know somebody that has an absence of joy this morning? They have an absence of hope. I want you to speak into their life this week. Tell them perhaps it's time to step back and evaluate. Am am I been guilty of trying to do things man's way? Or am I doing things God's way? Have I conformed to the culture? Or have I conformed to the image of God? You, You wanna see somebody get hope back in their life? Just ask them to ask this question. Am I keeping God's ways or am I keeping man's ways? I'm going to pray for us right now in that way before you leave that we would be bold enough to speak that way into someone's life. Would you join me in that? Father, before I even pray for those of us who need to speak boldly this week, I I pray for those right now that need to hear what we've just shared this morning. There's individuals in this auditorium right now that need to have their hope restored. And because you're the God of all hope, I ask you you would meet them right where they're at. Give individuals around them the capacity to see that sense of despair. And then we have the capacity to speak into that. Father, I also pray for individuals here that may need to speak into someone else's life today or this week, that you would embolden them through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak truthfully but honestly and with gentleness. Father, we pray for this because you are the God of hope and you want us to overflow with it. So we ask, take this refreshed approach of you and translate it, God, into abundant hope in our lives, in the lives of people whom we know, that we would point them to the king of hope. God, we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and soon-coming King, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.